Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning as we continue on in our series. Well, I think a story is only ever as good as its ending. Right? A story is really only ever as good as its ending. There have been plenty of good stories ruined by bad endings over the years, from books that I've read and gotten to the end and thought, that was a waste of time. That's how it ends? Are you kidding me? And getting frustrated to TV shows and movies that don't end in any way that is even satisfying. Uh, one TV show I had gotten into for, for quite a while when I was younger was the show Lost. I don't know if any of you watched Lost when it was coming out, but it was very popular. It was sci-fi. It's very much up my alley. I was intrigued. Uh, the story was about these castaways who had, you know, gotten into a plane crash. They're stuck on this deserted island, and then all these weird, mysterious things started happening. And I was, I was hooked in, and I was really curious as it continued on, how is this going to end? What, what is going to happen here? How is it all going to come together? And, and I remember even getting to the finale, and I'm waiting and watching it on TV, because you had to wait in those days. It's not just on streaming. And so we're waiting for it to come on and thinking, how are they going to bring it all together? And afterwards thinking, they didn't bring anything together. In fact, that was horrible. That was the end. They just stopped. They didn't answer all the questions that I had. And I was so frustrated because I had spent all this time investing into this story, and the ending went nowhere. So don't watch it. I don't, encourage, I don't recommend it. <laughs> but it was frustrating, right? If it doesn't actually come together, it just seems so pointless at the end. If the ending doesn't work, the story doesn't work, right? I think this often happens when, when studios and, and movies are trying to make more and more sequels. They want to bring more money instead of actually telling a good story. But I think the best stories are the ones that have the end in mind. The ones that actually have how it's going to all wrap up. And so throughout the story, you're seeing how the different threads come together, right? All the details are relevant, and they're leading you somewhere. You just don't know where yet. See, that's why I think the Bible is genuinely the greatest story ever told. Because when God is laying out the Bible... And as we come to all of these little stories that we find in our Bibles and we're wondering how do the threads all connect, when we finally come to the end, we see the big picture, actually God had a plan all along, right? He wasn't making it up as he goes. In fact, at the very beginning, he had the end in mind. It was all working exactly as God wanted it to and so for the past couple weeks, we have been walking through this little mini-series we've just called The Greatest Story, this grand story of what the Bible has to say. What is the overarching story that takes place? And so we've been walking through this for a couple weeks, and, and we started all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 at creation, God creating the world, placing Adam and Eve in this garden, and giving them a purpose. Here is why you are created, to go and, and put on display God's glory, fill the entire earth with his image. It was this perfect garden. But as we saw last week, it didn't actually stay there very long. In fact, the story 
went downhill quickly, and Adam and Eve, they, they sin, they rebel against God, and what we find happening is there is now a curse on the earth on them. They are now sinful, and God throws them out of the Garden of Eden. They're cast out, and no longer are they going to have that, that intimate relationship with God. But what's so amazing is that the story continued. Right? The amazing thing is that the story actually continued from there. Even as the curse of sin comes into the world, God says one day there is going to come one of your offspring and he will destroy sin forever. There was a hope mixed into that curse. There was a hope that one day things could be set right. And as we followed this story, we went from Noah all the way, from Adam to Noah, and we see sin just continually go greater and greater until God finally says, I'm wiping the board clean, sends a flood. But even in that act of judgment against their sin, God provided a means of salvation. In fact, God says to Noah, I want you to build an ark, and I am going to bring you through this judgment. But Noah himself, he wasn't the one. He was still sinful and fallen, and he still didn't live up, and so the story continues till you get to Abraham, and God says, I'm going to, in you, I am going to bring a blessing for all of the nations, but as we saw, Abraham doesn't live up to that either. Neither do his kids or even the nation that comes from him. They eventually end up in Egypt enslaved and are suffering there, and God brings about once again salvation brings them out of that bondage, and even gives them their own land, teaches them his losses. Here's how you can follow me, and still they don't get it right. So God has mercy and is patient with them, and he gives them a king. Here is King David. He can lead you properly, and God even gives this promise. One of David's sons, he will rule forever, an eternal kingdom. But he falls too. And his sons are sinful, and, and this spiral, this pattern repeats over and over and over again. Sin continues, and it keeps on stopping. It keeps on rebelling. God, things aren't getting better. In fact, we see the pattern go on and on. In fact, as we looked at this last week, we saw it's not just a pattern out there in the nation of Israel. It's actually a pattern in our own lives as well. It reveals to us our own very uh, clear need. We have a problem with sin. We have a problem with sin in our lives, and what we need is not just another chance at it. What we need is something new. And so this morning, what we get to do is we actually get to pick up the story now. We get to pick up the story and we get to see how does this problem get solved? What is going to happen? How is God going to now work out redemption? Because in fact, that's exactly what happens. God works redemption for his people. We left off the story last time and we were talking about John the Baptist. He's this very last prophet God sends to, to, to warn people, to call them back and he sends John the Baptist, and John has this one message. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from your sins. Stop going after them. Instead, follow after God. Why? 
Because God is going to bring about all of the blessings he has promised. The kingdom, that eternal throne, all of the blessing he promised to bring, he is going to bring that forth now. And so as the stage gets set, there enters a man named Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins to teach and talk to people about what God has for them. And in many ways, this was the kind of guy you could probably just pass by on the street without even really noticing. Right? He wasn't flashy. He wasn't really that handsome. He, he had a big crowd, but he didn't really play up to them. He didn't try and hype them up or whip them into a frenzy. He was a fairly, in many ways, normal person. Came from a small town up north had a bunch of people who followed him around. He even called them disciples. But while he wasn't the most flashy guy, if you were to listen to him, he was undeniably captivating. He held your attention because he spoke in a way no one had ever spoken before. When he would teach about God, it wasn't about something he knew about, but something he himself was experiencing. It was as if he had walked with God every single moment of his life. And when he talked about what God required of us, he didn't talk about following certain laws or making sure you're doing the right thing. He talked about being perfect. He talked about actually being holy before God without any sin. And then at the same time, he would go and have dinner with, with prostitutes and tax collectors and, and the sinners, those who are on the farthest margins of society. He seemed completely unaffected by their sin. Though he never joined them, he was not ashamed to be near them either. See, he himself claimed he was going to bring in this kingdom. He was going to bring this blessing that God had promised. And people were divided about who exactly this guy was. Some thought he was just crazy. Right, some of the really religious people, they, they had a problem with him. He was starting a new cult, or, or maybe he was just a blasphemer. They wanted nothing to do with him. Lots of others said, well, no, he's going to bring about this whole new regime. Yeah, we're going to rebel against the Romans. We're going to be set free. This is going to be great. And actually, if you watched him for a while, you'd believe it. He could probably do it. He would, he would just come up to people, and he would touch them, and they would be healed. Right From things that had affected them their entire lives, crippled limbs, sickness, leprosy, Demons seemed to be afraid of him. They tremble and shriek before him. There are reports of him walking on water, even speaking to the wind to tell it to stop, and it would. He even raised someone from the dead. If anyone could do it, it's probably this guy. He seemed to know what people were thinking all the time, and when he would tell these little stories, they would cut straight to the heart. They were at the same time both illuminating and confusing, and rumors had been going around, who is he? Is he just some sort of teacher? Maybe he's this new prophet or something else? But he himself, when he actually claimed, what did he say? He actually claimed that he was God. Not just that he knew about God, but that he and God were one. 
And see, this made people really mad. Even his disciples had a tough time with this one. They were trying to figure out what exactly that could possibly mean. And so Jesus began to tell them, actually, what's going to happen is I'm going to be put to death. His disciples said, what are you talking about? How can, how can you possibly say that? Aren't you telling us that you're going to be bringing forth all of these blessings, that you're going to be on this eternal throne? How can it be that you are going to be put to death? Stop it. But it actually seemed he was right. People were getting angrier and angrier at Jesus until one day it finally happened. They bribed one of his disciples. They told him where Jesus was going to be and actually brought soldiers to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. The bizarre thing is he didn't even stop them. He didn't even try and stop them. Even when his disciples started fighting back, he said, stop, that's enough, and he healed the man who got hurt. They took him to trial, and it was this mockery of a trial. Brought him before the Romans, and they whipped and beat him within an inch of his life. But as they brought Jesus back up on stage before the crowd that had gathered there, they yelled out, kill him put him to death, and they simply rioted until the Romans would do what they asked. So they strapped a beam of wood to his back and brought him out to the roadside in front of everyone, and there they hung him up, nailed him onto that beam in between two other criminals. As he hung there, he said softly, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he finally rattled out his last breath, the sky went black and an earthquake hit. Even the temple mount itself was shaken and and the curtain that stood between the presence of God and his people was torn in half and people who had died suddenly got back up out of the graves and were walking around the city. People were confused and terrified at what was happening. Even the soldier standing at the foot of the cross realized something had gone wrong. What had they just done? Three days later, after Jesus' body had been taken down and put into a tomb, some women went out there to make sure that he was buried properly. And when they came to the tomb, they found instead of a body, they found an angel who told them that in fact Jesus was not dead, but he had been raised to life again. And turning around, they find Jesus himself. And he tells them, go tell my disciples what has happened. And over the next few weeks, Jesus appears to his disciples. He comes, they touch him, they see him, they eat with him. He teaches them, and at one point, he then commissions them to go, to be his representatives, to tell others about what he has done. And so his disciples, a few weeks later, now filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to do exactly that. They go and they begin to proclaim, here is what has happened, here is what Jesus has done. And the church starts to form, and nations who have never heard begin to come into the church and hear about Jesus. One such man met Jesus on a road, who stopped him and told him he was now going to go preach the gospel. His name was Paul. 
former persecutor of the church, now preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he begins to go and, and spread and start new churches, he writes letters to them, encouraging them, explaining what does this story mean? What is the meaning of what Jesus has done? And so this morning what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to actually read one of those letters and ask the question, what does the story mean? What has Jesus done? So if you have a Bible with me, let me invite you to open. Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse seven. It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's as far as we're gonna read. See, this whole story has been about Jesus. From the very beginning to the very end, it is all about Jesus. The threads God has been laying down, all of the stories, they were not random. Actually, they were signposts pointing forward to when Jesus would come and what he was going to do. And so as Paul now begins to unravel and explain to us what these things have meant, he says to the Ephesian church, he says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. See, Paul tells us actually the death of Jesus wasn't an accident. It wasn't an unfortunate set of circumstances. In fact, it was the very reason he came. It was the very way in which all of the nations would be blessed. He was going to be the king forever. Jesus would go to the cross and he would redeem us. Now, I know for a lot of us, whenever we talk about redemption, we're usually talking about redeeming ourselves, right? We're usually talking about, you know, something I've messed up. I, you know, I missed the shot in the big game. Coach put me in. I need to redeem myself, right? That's how we usually talk, right? Or I, 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 I said the wrong things. Hold on, hold on. Let me, let me redeem myself. Let me say it properly, right? I, we are looking for another chance, but here's the thing, that's not what this verse means. This verse isn't talking about us getting a second chance. It's actually saying Jesus came to purchase our lives. See, redemption here is the language of purchasing slaves. Now, I know that's kind of already a bit of a shocking thing, but, but hold on, go with me here for just a second. All right, in the, in the Roman world, slavery was, was common, Right? It, was, it was still a bad thing, but it was quite different than how we often think about slavery. In the ancient world, if you were a slave, most likely it was because you incurred some kind of debt. Right? You owed people money, you couldn't pay, and, and at some point you just realized, I, I am stuck, there is no way I'm gonna be able to do this. My only hope of getting out of this debt is selling myself into slavery and working it off, right? That, that was how you would do it. So you would spend however many years as a slave working to pay off your debt, hoping that at the end of it you can be then released. 
That is, unless someone redeems you. Unless someone comes and says, I will pay for their debt. In fact, I am going to purchase them for myself. See, that is what Jesus came to do. He came to actually redeem, to purchase people out of slavery, and he did so with his very own life. See, as we have followed this story throughout the Bible, our our great need has always been, how are we going to deal with sin? Right? We've tried again and again and again, over and over, and we haven't been able to deal with our sin. We actually just keep finding ourselves rooted down more and more into sin. What we needed was a savior to come. We needed someone to purchase us out of that slavery. And Paul says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. See, we all had a debt we cannot pay. We have this debt we cannot pay back to God. No matter how long, no matter how well we work, we cannot pay it back We've tried over and over again. We've had second chances to a thousand times. What we needed was someone to come and pay it for us. And so Jesus came and he stepped in our place. The punishment of sin is death and Jesus died for us. He paid that penalty that we could not have. And so now we, we don't have another chance. We have a new life. In fact, that means we don't just get to try again. It means we are made wholly new. And he even says that means we have the forgiveness of our sins. See, before we were cut off from God, thrown out of the Garden of Eden, no longer could we have peace with God. Our sin had separated us. We were under God's wrath. And so Jesus came and he took that penalty. He took that wrath so our sins could be forgiven so that we could have peace with God. The whole story shows us our need. We needed a savior who had no flaw, who would not fail us again. It was all pointing towards Jesus. In fact, at the end of the book of Luke, when Jesus rises again, he speaks to two men on the road to Emmaus. He says, and beginning with Moses, And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, Jesus just walks through with them the entire Old Testament and says, do you see how it was all pointing forward to what I was going to do? How all of the the, the promises that didn't quite get fulfilled were actually pointing forward to greater fulfillment? It was about the salvation and the redemption that he was going to bring. In fact, Romans chapter three summarizes it this way. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a, big word, propitiation, right? That is a wrath-bearing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right, it's a big passage. Am I falling off? Forgive me. I'm just getting a little bit forward here. Romans chapter three is a big passage, but let me just point out a couple things. One, see all throughout the Old Testament, there had been this question that had been burning in the back of the minds, and that is, why didn't God just punish Adam and Eve right away? Why didn't they die right there on the spot? Why was God so patient? Why was he so merciful? Was it because he just didn't care about their sin? That it wasn't really a big deal or, or that, you know what, he can just kind of overlook it, shove it under the rug. It's not really a big thing. And actually now as Paul is looking back on it, he goes, oh, I get it now. It wasn't because God didn't care. It was because he already knew what was coming up. He knew their sins would be forgiven in Jesus. He was the reason why God could show them mercy and love and patience over and over and over again. It was because of what Jesus was going to do. He was going to pay the penalty for their sins. The whole story was always about Jesus. Jesus was always in mind. And so Paul then says, so that... If anyone would place their trust, place their faith in him, they would be saved. See, the salvation that Jesus has worked, this redemption, this forgiveness is open for us. See, here's the truth. We now get to enter into the story. We actually enter into the story that, that God has been working out since creation. Actually, we have a part to play now. This is the salvation that is open for you here today. For anyone who would repent of their sins, turn away from them, and trust in Jesus Christ, this forgiveness, this salvation is for you. Oh, how desperately do we all need Jesus. Now hear me, this is no small measure. This is no tiny thing that, that Jesus has done. In fact, listen to what Paul says. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God has lavished grace upon us in abundant measure. As rich as God is, so richly he has poured out grace and love and forgiveness on us. This is no meager, you're gonna squeak by if you believe in Jesus. This is, you will come into heaven with singing and praising, not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done, what Jesus has accomplished for us. See, this is why we spent so long last week in the fall is why we took time to, to talk about our, our sin and our helplessness, our hopelessness, how we are dead, stuck, and immoving in our sin. It's because if we miss that, we will miss how amazing it is that Jesus has poured out love and grace on us, on what we could not do. And so if you're here this morning, hear me, it's because of this grand story. We meet together to remind ourselves, to encourage one another, to, to place our trust here. 
I don't think it's an accident that we are here together, that we're uh, hearing this call. Actually, you are part of God's grand story. You are part of what God is doing. I want to invite you, would you place your trust in Jesus? There's no person here excluded because of their background, because of what they've done. I know there are some who are going to believe that they're too far gone. I've done too many things wrong to be forgiven. That's not true. There's a reason Jesus hung out with prostitutes. It's because they weren't too far gone either. Not one of us has kept God's standard. None of us can earn our way to his favor. All have fallen short. And the offer of Jesus is open to all. That we would be made the redeemed people of God. Sinners made into saints. Not given another chance, but given a new life. But lest we misunderstand what, what, what Paul is talking about, what Jesus has done. This isn't some sort of, sort of cheap grace. You can keep on sinning, just make sure you come back and ask for forgiveness. Actually, it's a new life in which the direction of what we pursue changes. Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, Paul's whole point here is that we don't go back into sinning, don't go back into that way of life. Actually, it transforms who we are. Now we have a new life, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we are raised to a new life in him, one in which our goal is to give God all the glory. We have been given a new life that we might now serve him. Right, Romans chapter 6 will go on to talk about this freeing from slavery into sin to now actually slavery to righteousness. Serving now God instead of serving our sin. One leads to death, the other leads to eternal life. But here's the truth, and everyone who's a Christian knows it. We don't do it perfectly. <laughs> We don't live this way perfectly. We still struggle with sin. We feel that call back to our former master. We fall back into the rut, into the patterns, into that cycle that we know we ought not to, but we still get pulled back. And you might say, well, why is that the case? If Jesus has truly saved us, why am I still struggling with that? If I have this new life, why am I still so tempted by sin? Here's the answer. It's because Jesus isn't done yet. It's because Jesus isn't done yet. See, we live in between what Jesus began and what he is going to finish one day. The story hasn't concluded. Look back with me at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
See, there is still one more step that's going to take place. All things will be brought under the reign of Jesus Christ. We walked through creation, we walked through the fall, we saw redemption, but there is still one more, that is the restoration of all things. God will one day restore fully what was lost. One day, no more sin. One day, there will be no more pain or toil caused by the fall. One day, the curse of sin will be removed forever. What has been lost shall be restored and so much greater, far more than we have ever known. See, the last book in our Bible is the book of Revelation. It's this complicated, confusing book, but in it, God gives us this glimpse into what he is going to do. What is going to come forward? How is the story going to be resolved? And so while it doesn't always give us exactly the outline we would want, it does tell us about what is coming up. Revelation 22 The very last chapter in our Bible says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. See, the Bible begins in a garden, in a paradise. And actually it ends in a garden city, in a paradise where we will dwell with God forever. What we have lost in the fall will actually be restored in the end and far greater than all that we have known. The redeemed people of God will come to worship at the eternal throne. God himself will lead and guide us every single day and we will see God face to face. Just as Adam and Eve walked with God all those many, many long years ago, we too one day will walk with God and speak with him. The mandate to fill the earth with the glory of God will now be unhindered by sin. No longer will our sin nature ever call us back to following away from God. We are his forever. See, this is where the story is going. And it would be fitting to say it's the conclusion, but not quite the end. Because in fact, God is still going to be doing things and we shall reign with him. Sin will be at an end. But in fact, we shall be with him. Now, I know a lot of people have thought that, that heaven is going to be something like an eternal church service. And whether you've said it or not, that sounds really boring, doesn't it? Yeah, I love church. I still think that would get old, wouldn't it? But in fact, that's not what we just read, is it? In fact, that's not the picture the Bible gives us at all. Look back at it. It talks about a city, 
a tree changing of seasons. It's a physical place, not floating on some ethereal cloud. We read of things to explore, to know, to understand. We'll be reigning with God. We'll, in fact, have jobs, things to do, a purpose in life. And we're not going to suddenly be omniscient as if we will know everything that God knows. No, in fact, I think we're going to have to study and figure things out and learn and grow in that. All of it will happen, though, without sin holding us back. And we will stand with God, this fountain of truth and all knowledge, and dive deep into the plumb and depth, plumb the depths of all that he is never finding an end. We'll spend it together as the people of God, not isolated or outside of relationship. It will simply be relationships no longer hindered by sin, no longer are there gonna be hurt feelings. In fact, we're gonna know true, genuine love, not these cheap imitations that so often masquerade. Far from being an eternal church service, this is a place of genuine worship in every area of God's creation, forever enjoying all that God has made. See, this is where the story is going. This is where the story leads us to. All hurts will be healed. All that is lost shall be restored. That is where it's going. The curse is no more. It's the story of God's glory written for us, the grand story of the Bible. But today, this is where we sit. Today we sit in between. We sit in the tension of seeing God's redemption and awaiting that restoration yet to come. But let me say to you, that doesn't mean that this has no purpose. No, in fact, the reason that we are part of this story, the reason that we are here is because God has placed us here. God has actually wanted us to be a part of this story. So let me ask you, where is your part? For some of you, maybe it's, it's actually trusting Jesus for the very first time. Maybe it's placing your trust that actually you can't do it, that you can't do it on your own, but Jesus has done it all. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you, your story is to begin to actually live now like Jesus. To begin to live out the new life that Jesus has purchased for you. To begin to let it show in your life now. And actually begin to now share this grand story, this good news with those around you. In fact, I think that is the call. Why has God waited? Why, why aren't we just right now in heaven? Actually, it's because he's giving us time to go out to the nations and share the good news, the grand story of what God has accomplished to make disciples of all nations so that everyone might hear of what Jesus has done in creation through the fall, redemption, and one day to the restoration of all things. Let us declare that story with all of our lives, giving everything we have so that others might know and love the story that God has written for us. Story of redemption, and it's the story of Jesus. So as we close here, let me invite the worship team to come forward and lead us in singing and praising God for what he has done. Would you join me now in a word of prayer?
Father, we thank you so much. Lord, thank you that you don't just leave us. You don't leave us stuck in our sin, but that you have come, that you sent Jesus that we might be saved. Father, we confess we are sinners. We confess we have rebelled against you, that we have not acted as we should. But Lord, we place our trust in Jesus, that he has saved us. He has paid the debt that we could not pay. And one day, Lord, we shall be with you forever. I pray, Father, make us more and more into your image. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we have the privilege of participating in this story in a very active way. As the worship team leads us, we're also going to be participating in communion. So for those of you who are serving, you can make your way to the front. Communion is this visible symbol of what Jesus has done, of the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, that is our goal together. That is our goal as a church that we would declare the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until one day he comes again. And so we get the joy, the privilege of actually participating in that together. So if you're here this morning, if you're a Christian, you have confessed your sins, you have given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you, come up, participate with us. If you're here this morning and that's not you, you haven't yet given your life over to Christ where you, are not, you would not say that you are a follower of Jesus, I'll invite you to simply stand, sing with us. Please don't feel singled out. Everyone was once at a point where they also did not partake. But we serve a wonderful Savior. And we get to worship, we get to participate in what he has done. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So would you stand with me? Let's sing. And Lois, please lead us. <laughs> 